In 2009, a detective sergeant, Julie Mackay, started working in the cold case unit of Avon and Somerset Police. It was an exciting time. They had a number one job, the historic murder of the 17-year-old Melanie Road in Bath in 1984. Melanie had been stabbed and sexually assaulted as she walked home. For more than two decades, the inquiry, which had the name Operation Rhodium, had bewildered and taunted a generation of detectives. Now, it looked as if it had been solved following a television appeal on Crime Watch. Except it hadn't. The first of many setbacks Julie would endure. When Julie then reviewed the case herself, the similarities between her, the detective, and Melanie, the murder victim, seemed uncanny. They'd been about the same age, they went to the same nightclubs, and Julie was now leading the life Melanie could have led. I've been at those clubs in Bath. She was like me, so she had blonde hair like me, she was outgoing like me. Julie became haunted by Melanie's case. I was convinced I was going to find her killer. There's, I can't, people would say why, and I just said, it's a gut instinct in here, and we're going to find him. Now, detectives had a full DNA profile, but there were no links on the National DNA Database. The killer could be anywhere on the planet, or even dead. But Julie refused to give up. Even as her own career moved away from cold cases to live murders, she kept investigating Melanie's killing, alongside her colleague, Gary Mason. They rebuilt the mountain of paperwork at the Forces Bourneville Storage Centre and were ready when a witness came forward after remaining silent for a quarter of a century. When they came back and it was like he's seen the murderer and he's definitely, you know, what he saw was her and the killer that night. And that was like, wow, what can we get from this? How are we going to now find the killer from this? And the friendship Julie built with Melanie's mother, Jean Rode, is unlike any I've heard of between a murder detective and the murder victim's mother. Julie was a single mum. Her own life was starting to spiral out of control and she would often turn to Jean for help even. And the story ends, and I can vouch for this because I was there, in the most heart-rending courtroom confrontation between the amazing mum, Jean Rode, and her daughter's killer. The story is the subject of a book Julie and I have written. To Hunt a Killer is its name. We won the Best New Author Award at the True Crime Awards in the UK, and we were also shortlisted for a Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger, which is a huge achievement for debut writers. This is a true crime book, but unlike any true crime book I've read. And in this interview, Julie and I talk about the case, how she solved it, her love for Jean Road, and what it was like to see her life on the page. There are links to the book in the show notes, and if you want more, as ever, please subscribe at robertsmurphy.substack.com. Julie, this is your story, this is your life. You're the main character in this. There's a lot of true crime out there. Why did you want to bring this book out there? Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it, really? So, first of all, I can't believe that it's me and my story. I feel a bit removed from it. Uh, and there's two aspects to it. So one is the actual true crime. is really interesting case. It went on for so long. There were so many twists and turns. And when we finally got to the end, it was like, this has to become a story to be told because it's fascinating. 
And then in tandem to that, as you'll know when you read the book, there's all these things going on in the background in my personal life. It's chaotic, sometimes a bit of carnage. And I've learned um, as I've gone through life, I do seem to attract a bit of adversity all the time in these things, that when you talk to other people, which you do in policing, but just also normal life, and I think it's probably become more prevalent as well through COVID, lots of people have loads of challenges and really do suffer, but they never put the hand up and say, do you know what, this is what's going on. And if you could put your hand up and say, this is what's going on, then you can get more help and support. And you'll see in the book that I really didn't do that either. I mean, I did ask for help, but people around me didn't have a clue what was going on. And um, I suppose part of that was my coping mechanism. So there's all that to share that because it's about you can survive in the face of adversity. And in tandem, of course, I was so lucky to have Jean in my life and Melanie's mum. And if anybody can survive in the face of adversity and grief and trauma, she did. And her resilience really, really helped me. When you started reading about Melanie, what did you think of her? What impression did you get? So the first things I read about Melanie was that case file, the, the closing report really, the, the story book I call it. It's not a story at all, is it? Because it's factual. Um, but it was about her, about her being out in Bath at a club, you know, and I've been at those clubs in Bath. She was like me, so she had blonde hair like me, she was outgoing like me, she obviously put you know, having fun, at least on a par with her studies. I put having fun above my studies. <laughs> and um, so I saw a lot of similarities and she was only a little bit older than me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when I first met Jean, uh, you know, I was the same sort of age then as Jean had been when Melanie was killed. So there were similarities there. I was convinced I was gonna find her killer. Yeah. There's, I can't, people would say why. And I just said, it's a gut instinct in here and we're gonna find him. And that day when Gary rang me to say that we got the DNA hit, but, you know, it was just, oh my God, Melanie, we've done it for you. And it was as though she's there with me and we've done it. So yeah, great affinity to her. And she just didn't deserve to die, did she? And, no. you know, I've lived a life that she could have lived probably. Yes, yeah. yeah. Special girl and a yeah. special family as well. Yeah, yeah, lovely, lovely family, lovely mm. people. This is one of the big themes of the book, isn't it? Your relationship with Jean. Do you remember first meeting her and, and how did the relationship develop? I was taken on the review of the case. had been the Crime Stoppers bit had gone on and we were just then working through the next stages and said, oh, you should come and meet Jean. Um, so I did. I just went and met her in her sitting room and she was just lovely. When you first meet victims, um, families, it's always a little bit... Uh, you're a bit apprehensive because you don't want to say the wrong thing, you don't want to do the wrong thing. You want them to think that they can trust you and that you're going to be professional. And she was just really open and really nice. But of course, they've been dealing with the police for 25 years. So as she says, another police officer traipsing through her front door and that was me. But over time, it became something else, didn't it? Yeah, because um, as we went on then, so I really early on was convinced I was going to solve this case. Yeah. As I've said, and everyone looked at me as though I was mad, and I told Jean this as well, and Adrian when I first met him. Um, but I just used to go and visit her to keep her in the loop about what was happening, because we were doing things all the time, and who's going to tell her? So she had a family liaison officer, but they were a little bit removed, so they weren't working in the team. So by the time I told them and they'd made time to go and see Jean, I kept them in the loop with it, but 
just found it was easier to go and see her myself and got on really well with her. I quite like to go and have a cup of tea anyway and biscuits, that was good. Particularly towards the end of the book as well, I mean, she became a big part of your life and a support. Just yeah, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so she was great. So as we went on, so I would go, and this is just how it evolved. I'd go, we'd have a cup of tea, we'd have some biscuits and we'd chat and then she might need some shopping. So I'd either get shopping for her when I was shopping for everyone else or I'd take her out. Um, or we'd go out and we'd go and have tea or we'd go to the garden centre or go to the pub and just generally chat. We liked the same things. So going to see her wasn't always about, of course, there's updates to do with the case or no updates, depending where we were. But we'd just chat about life, gardening, what was happening. She'd tell me all about her life and things that had happened to her, which was really interesting. My life was its usual spiralling car crash and I'd see, you know, just say to her, Oh, how's things at home, Julia? I say, yeah, they're a bit dire at the moment, Jean. Um, but she would be a help. She's she so support? steady. She was so so steady and calm. And oh well, these things happen. You know, you'll be all right. And she was great. She wasn't ever judgmental. I think that's the key. Everybody always, if you tell people about things that are difficult in your life, they will judge you, uh, or they'll have an opinion. And she was never like that. She never said you should do this or you should do that. She was just like there, rock solid in the background. You're a bit of a free thinker, slightly unorthodox. I think you'll probably be the first to admit that. And this relationship with a victim's mother is also slightly unusual, or it is perhaps to some more traditional detectives. Did anyone ever say to you, come on, there are rules here, there are guidelines, and this isn't how it works? Or what would you say to somebody who would think that? It's interesting, isn't it? Because normally there is a set protocol around it. So you do have your family liaison officers, the SIO does engage with the victim's family and some cases more than others. I think the difference in this case was it was going on for so long yeah. and uh, and the other aspect was that I was the one constant working on it then from when I started until we finished through those seven years, um, apart from obviously Gary, who was there. Uh, it was me and the family liaison, she was there at the beginning, but then she left and had retired. There was somebody else who was involved uh, around family liaison and he was great. But yeah, it just evolved like that. Did anyone ever ask me? No. <laughs> no one ever said, are you, what are you doing, Julie? Uh, being friends with Jean and, and Adrian and Karen or why are you seeing them? And it became more accepted that I was that person, that contact going through, because I knew, A, everything about what we were doing, and B, I'd just formed that relationship with them. The book starts in uh, the story where you're going for the first time in 2009, a mass of crates and evidence bags and files. What was that like, just seeing this big mountain of evidence, this case? This carnage. Absolute carnage in that warehouse, if that's what you want to call it. So they'd said when you're going to the Bourneville, wear like jeans and scruffy clothes, which of course I probably never did because I just wasn't like that. That meant being organised. And um, yeah, it's dirty. It's floor to ceiling of crates and boxes and exhibit bags and files. Uh, those rickety old doors to get in, the blooming alarm that always went off, no matter what you did, whether you pressed the right buttons or not. And, yeah, just cold and dirty, really. But was it overwhelming? Because, like, generations of detectives have been to this case and had created all this stuff, and now it's your turn. 
Yeah, so there's two things about going into the Bourneville. So one was I've worked on a lot of murders over the years. So I started, you know, really just as a young probationer, as the gopher in 1989, right the way through to where were we then, 2009, so 20-odd years. And, um, and I recognised some of the cases when I was in there. So that was the first thing. They've all got names and you think, oh, yeah, I've worked on that one or I worked on that one or that one's unsolved still. And when we first went with Melanie Road, it wasn't all in one place. So they were the boxes were all over the place in this warehouse, so they weren't all stacked together. And it took some time to find all those documents. 30,000 documents and all the exhibits, and they just weren't in one place, so we didn't even have them all, really. Um, but did you think, you know, how, how, how am I going to pick my way through all of this? I thought, how are we going to find all the stuff? <laughs> and having worked on other cold cases where you don't have everything, yeah. when eventually it was all gathered up and put in one place, we thought that was phenomenal, absolutely amazing that we'd found it. Uh, and then the next bit really was around, it's just, it's a funny thing. So I always present as being really chaotic, and I am a bit chaotic because I'm doing so many things at once, but underneath it, I'm really, really methodical. And when I started in the review team then, um, following on from that anniversary appeal at Crime um, Watch, it needed to get everything in order. And so it was a case of, okay, let's just go back to the beginning. So then when we found the documents, yes, it's overwhelming because there's boxes and boxes of them, but actually it was quite calming because you knew that it was all there. And then you'd find another box of things like the, the green book that, um, you know, with all the green blood. Um, people in it yeah and that was just like oh that's really interesting where's that come from you know and it was sort of like randomly somewhere else um the exhibits we didn't have all the exhibits then and in fact we didn't even find some of them until you know years later yeah. but it was nice to know that we had some and that we could uh, resubmit those if we needed to and then just getting it up and running and trying to get it off a card system and onto a computer and, and over the years, obviously the book goes into the detail about yeah. how you did it. What for you were the real highs, the points we thought, yes. Uh, so it's really strange, isn't it? Because the, the very first thing when we had from Crime Watch, after our first suspect was no longer, we had 72 names. And just getting those on a paper system to say, right, who are these people and who is eliminated? That was my first yes, because we'd done it. You know, we'd got them and we were off and running then. And once we'd started that, that was good. Um, the next bit then was around the opportunity to apply for familial work. Yeah. I think that was really exciting. And I had no idea about it. I didn't understand it as I do now. Um, the highs and lows that follow that, of course, go. When it was brought across, so subsequently I moved from the review team into the MSIT, to the murder teams as a DI, as an SIO, and when the case was taken there, I felt really happy about that, felt like it was where it should be. Going back to what I would have thought is a big high was when this man comes forward after 26 years, Ben, yeah. in the book. And here's this guy out of nowhere who saw it and nobody's ever spoken to him. What was that like, that moment? So that was a bit bizarre because they had a phone call saying, oh, somebody's contacted us at Bath saying they witnessed it. And that was a few months after Crime Watch. So we'd done our 72 names. That was in order. So I was happy then. And uh, when he comes forward and says, yes, I was part of it. Okay. So the first thing you do is research him. 
who is he? So we've had quite a lot of people come forward or names put forward. So are they mad? Are they telling the truth? Are they being vindictive? Uh, have they been interviewed already? There's all these questions and things you want to know about that individual before you even talk to them. Yeah. And we went through all of that and he seemed to be from the off, just on the face value of our papers, genuine. Yeah. So that was exciting. And then sending, obviously, Alan out with Gary to go and interview him and waiting to see what he said. And when they came back and it was like, he's seen the murderer and he's definitely, you know, what he saw was her and the killer that night. And that was like, wow, yeah. what can we get from this? How are we going to now find the killer from this? The, the, the case did change at that point, or it gave you a lot more, didn't it, than you, you had ever had before, oh, or yeah. anyone had ever had Yeah, it before. gave us loads. So it gave us a description of the killer, yeah. and, um, and we could um, try and compare that to what we knew from the science. Uh, it gave us some timings. Uh, it gave us the opportunity, as we went on, to use our professionals, so our profilers that we used subsequently and years later. And all these things help, and it focuses everybody's mind because suddenly you've got another opportunity to solve it. So you haven't just got your DNA now and your science, you've got a witness and all that he could tell us. So he knew that the person was in Bath, he'd seen him before on at least two occasions. So, okay, so they're local. Uh, and where do we start looking? And that was a great step forward. You had quite a few steps back as well during yeah, this plenty. case. <laughs> yeah, what, what was it like though, when you think, you know, you've, you've just made this huge advance and. Yeah. It's such an important thing to solve this m murder and you get another setback. Yeah. So I think the first setback for me really was around the familial work when we'd gone through all the application process, which jumped through many hoops, secured £20,000 worth of funding from the stealth funding. And, and then the government put the embargo on it because they wanted to review it and the legitimacy of using those samples. And I thought that was really annoying to say the least. And that, that was a year before that came. Um, and then obviously when we started on the familiar work and everybody says, oh, you'll get them in the top 10. We've had loads of success, you know, and we learnt so much about it from other people around the country. And our list came through and we're really excited then. And we go and do our swabbing all over the place and we're gonna find them in the top 10 or the top 15. And uh, of course, as the months go on, we did a, yeah. it's like, that's a bit irritating. Everyone said we'd find them and we haven't, why not? Yeah. And then the next thing that we focused on was if anybody ever rang up and gave us a name, we immediately researched that person and took whatever steps we could to eliminate them. And we had a few really, really good suspects, you know, deathbed confessions and, um, uh, of course, the old clairvoyant that comes up and, you know, all these different things. And each one, when you research them, they were there at the right time. They might have the right antecedent history in violence or sex offending if they were known to the police. They might not have been known to the police. They might have died because they committed suicide after the police were going to see them or something else similar had happened. And each one, you think, yeah, this could be it. It, they fit the criteria of what we're looking for. But, but with the passing of time did, and all these great leads, all these great names, these great antecedents come forward and they're all no, 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 no. It's How very annoying. It's more annoying, surely, isn't it? Get it back from the lab, you know, and you're last, of the last 25 samples that were examined, none match the profile. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake, really? And 
off you go again. And that's, I suppose that's why they started introducing this suspect of, well, we did suspect of the week, suspect of the month. It usually took us, yeah, more than a week to get them. Because how then out of your, I mean, we had, <clears throat> focusing on the people in the system, eight and a half thousand names. Yeah. So how do you get your team motivated? Oh, here we are. We've already done 2,300 and eliminated them. Yeah. So we're on the next hundred. How are we going to choose them and make people excited? So that's how that came about, really. So from all those knockbacks, it wasn't just that. It was about, OK, we've had all these knockbacks. Let's One of the big themes of the book is also you being a working mum and balancing being effectively a single mum to three teenage children and having a full time, really demanding job. How did it work or didn't it? Chaotic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like everything in my life so yeah so um certainly at the beginning you know when I started with um on the review team I was on my own with the three children then who would probably be about 10 11 and 13 I think something yeah. like that and we had dogs and horses so you know I'd get up in the morning and do the horses and yeah, they were probably quite far out my children. We live in the countryside. We didn't have many boundaries about being out and about. So, yeah, so that was, um, it was hard work. It was hard work at the beginning because I didn't have um, any support. So I didn't really have family support around me. So I had nobody who came, you know, was either pick them up or drop them off in the morning or afternoon at school or come one day a week or do anything. And um, the dad uh, decided that, he would help but not to that regular extent so couldn't rely on him either because of also his work I guess so I one day in my little meltdowns I thought right I need to change this I've got no pair so that was great so that enabled me to do stuff that I needed to do and then um, moved across um, I'd had a nanny as well who'd helped me over the years so it's about I think the first thing was just about getting some help in place yeah. and knowing what you could or couldn't rely on and then as we go through the book I then uh, was in another relationship um, with somebody and we all moved into the house together and whilst um, he was good you know in that he'd cook and do stuff like that the responsibility for those children throughout was always mine yeah. and nobody else ever came so I talk in the book about the challenges of Toby yeah, he was always in trouble at school, which went back to dyslexia, not being diagnosed, not having the right support, being disruptive, really, really hard. And nobody ever went to any of those school meetings with me, ever. Mm. No one went in my place and no one went with me. And that was every single week I was summoned to school because of some drama. But, but so you, but you would be on a murder? Yeah. or something like yeah. that or, or on a, and then you yeah. would get a call saying look this has happened you know yeah. it's, it's this balancing yeah. act that, that so get called out in the middle of the night you know at the weekend uh, I remember that one clearly Saturday morning five o'clock Saturday morning has been a murder so you know they're all in bed uh, and I'd write a note on the kitchen table can you please just get all your school uniform to the washing machine at least uh, if you've got some homework try and do one bit of it today you know here's breakfast I'll see you later uh, and later meant you know 10 o'clock that night but at the beginning of your career, you were sort of highlighted, singled out as being this sort of rising star, yeah. didn't suffer fools, very clever, yeah. um, will go far. Uh, and I guess some of your contemporaries, particularly, I guess, other women as well, perhaps who didn't yeah. have um, kids, have been able to realise that potential, were able to do that more quickly. Whereas yeah. you, there was a, was it 15, 20 year period where it didn't happen for you? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, I mean, I did, I got promoted, um, or I passed my exams really young in service, I was on the High Potential Development Scheme, and yeah, exactly, highlighted for great things. Um, but because when I had that first child, um, and I had a husband who was working away, I couldn't get promoted because you could only get promoted to work early, lates and nights. Yeah. That was it. There was no... F the flexibility they gave me was uh, they allowed me to apply for an intelligence job where I could work 8 till 4 Monday to Friday. And that was the job's give. And there were other women on that course who'd gone on to be chief constables and commanders in the Met who are brilliant. Yeah. And, um, but they had their children later so at the rank of chief inspector, I learned this, it's a good way to yes. go. And I see it still in policing today. Women who have children before they're promoted to inspector then don't get to inspector very quickly at all because they've got those competing demands. You think policing has made enough changes or do you, what more? There's never enough changes. No. You know, and, and, we, you know, and we've seen just even recently in policing about you know, poor behaviours, haven't we? Uh, there is a particular highlight of men and their bad behaviours and you know that's always more prevalent than you know there will be women that are grim as well but not as many as men and how do you eradicate that so there's there's so much more to do and for people to be kinder and more understanding but yeah it was tough i used to leave work in the middle of the day because i'm summoned to school for something and just say oh, i'm just popping out for an hour you know and i'd be firing up the motorway to go to school to deal with their latest drama because i found it easier just to deal with them head on when you found out who Melanie's killer was. You know, he had a clean record. He'd been keeping this a secret for three decades. How did he do that? Because we found him at 31 years later, didn't we? Yeah. And at 30 years, on that 30th anniversary, I remember being in Bath, you know, and being interviewed. And you know, the options were for me then, he's dead, and we'll never find him because his DNA's not on the system. And unless someone comes forward and says, and we could do it through familial, um, elimination, we wouldn't know. Um, he was living abroad and we'd never find him because he wouldn't come to our notice and it'd be too difficult unless somebody said. Or he was living a normal life. And one of the things I said in one of those interviews was, how can it be right that he's living a normal life when Melanie's dead and her family have still gone through all this pain? And it really, it was always a consideration for me that he was and had lived a normal life. And so when we found him, and there he was living his normal life, it didn't surprise me um, like that, on the one hand, because that's how it hadn't come to our notice. But on the other hand, her killing was so brutal. How could somebody live with themselves or disassociate themselves with that sequence of events on that night 30 years earlier? and not behave in an adverse way or display any signs or tell anybody. Was that was amazing. It was it just a switch in his mind, do you think? Yeah. Who, who knows? Nuss had done no idea. He never spoke, so I don't know. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that intrigues me always that I'd like to ask him is, why did you do it? What on earth drove you to do it? Not just because you want to say, oh, why did you do it? You're really bad. But if you understand why he did that, you might be able to stop others from behaving in the same way in the future. And secondly, how did he reconcile doing that and then living the life that he did. The ending of the book is bittersweet. One time you've got the culmination, you know, the, the case of your life, you're being fated in the media. But away from that, there's all kinds of other things going on that, that, had, that have broken you effectively. Just briefly tell us what that was like. Yes, I mean, that day in court was phenomenal, wasn't it, all that? Yeah. And it was... It's a funny world, really, because you don't have much time to sit and enjoy it. 
and it was really emotional when the family were doing their victim impact statements. You genuinely want to sit there and cry for them versus you want to feel all warm inside because actually you have found the man that killed Melanie and he's there in the dock. You spent seven years doing that as well. Yeah, such a, yeah thing. a long time, yeah. I always knew I'd found him though. That's what made me feel smug. And then, yeah, dealing with all the media outside, which was huge, and uh, everything that went with that. You know, everybody wants a little part of you and how you do that. Um, the organisation, I think Ava and Somerset Police were caught on the back foot a little bit. They didn't realise how it would capture the hearts of the nation, a cold case. And because nobody really took much interest, you know, corporately in me doing this work, they didn't know or understand it. And it was like, suddenly, oh, it's all there. So that was interesting. Um, and then at home, you know, I've got um, the carnage at home. So a failing relationship that was really, really difficult. Um, I've got a son who is, you know, off the rails a bit, really, not really living at home, partly because I couldn't have him living at home because he's just smoking cannabis and, you know, it was irrational, it caused a lot of angst, but you want him at home, what do you do? I don't know what to do for the best. Um, I've got a daughter who's away, you know, uh, who'd gone at 16, now 17, living in Belgium. And then I've got my youngest who's just still permanently in trouble at school, which I still, as I've said, I just didn't really think it was his fault. But, you know, what do we do with him and how do we manage all that? I couldn't get out of where I was because of it was I was stuck and yeah. nobody wanted to help. And yeah, I do talk in the book, I was broken. It did get broken, properly broken. You just had a big operation as well, yeah, just a few right. months earlier. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 I'd had a hysterectomy and, oh, the whole thing, it just was, it was imploding inside and I didn't really know how to get out of it. I couldn't work out how to get out. So I think that was the hardest thing. And then, of course, um, in work, you know, I'd strived because now my kids were older and not at home, I could get promoted but I was not successful at the boards. I'd passed a board and then that same job, I didn't get that job, somebody beat me by a point, which is fine. But when that job was available six weeks later, rather than put me straight in there, having done a process six weeks earlier, they decided they weren't gonna do it like that and do it a different way. And yeah. so then I had to go through the whole thing again. And on the day of the, you know, the conviction at court and I come out with, a Crown Court commendation for leadership, for skill, for management, for my SIO abilities. I get an email saying you've been paper sifted out because you didn't write it the way we like it for your DCI. And you know, do, you know, honestly, I know I'm not shouldn't swear, but I did sit there and think, what the actual fuck is going on? This is ridiculous. But luckily. Gloucestershire were then advertising <laughs> a couple of weeks later and all you had to do was write your name on the application form. So I thought, well, I can do that. So that's what I did. And looking back at it now, the whole thing yeah. that's now a, a book, what are your thoughts about that? About A, what a time of your life and B, yeah. now it's out there as a, as a product, something people can buy and read. Uh, so I have mixed feelings about it. So I'm really proud about the investigation. Um, I love that we managed to get through it so and I say that collectively so me and Jean and my kids and that we've all got through those dark days and came out the other side with different positive outcomes for all of us you know yeah. and I'm scared in some ways about putting it out there because you do bear your soul and I'm like oh should I do this what will people think of me 
And then I think, do I really care what people think of me? Because I didn't care then what they thought of me and do I really now? And why have I done it? I've done it because it's so important to show that we all have difficult journeys in life. And not only that, that we can all get out of that difficult journey and go on and be brilliant still. Here we are talking about you know, the book and what it's been like and the journey. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting is we've written this together. Yes. And I know you've asked me a load of questions and I've now yes. typically caught you on the hop. Yes, thank but you. But how we came together and what it's been like for you as well, as an author. I remember being super interested in the case when I first uh, heard about it and did the 30th anniversary. Yeah. And then, of, of course, when um, the, the sentencing happened was what a moment is up there really for me in the... Uh, in the things that I've seen, either in or outside of work, frankly, it was just so special and heartbreaking. Um, uh, and having gotten to know you a bit, I knew the links between, you know, your similar age to Melanie and about your relationship with Jean. And I'd always thought that it was um, a very compelling story. Um, and as we spoke over, over the last year or so, and I found out more about what you had been through, um, there were just so many, uh, universal themes that I think anyone could relate to uh, that would make this story really special. The challenges of being a parent, the challenges of having a job and being a, a parent and a demanding job as well, which I think a lot of people reading the book would have as well. Um, and just sort of where you went as well, how open you were, uh, how vulnerable you were, I think it's really strong. Um, uh, I was well, my concerns is whether we would get on, actually, yeah. because... Yeah, how does that work? Yeah, exactly. Well, what if we don't... <laughs> exactly, if yeah. we don't get on. And I don't think we've had yeah. a crossword. I don't no. know. And we're both quite um, strong-minded people, actually, yeah. as well. And if we hadn't, that would have been a, a problem. But yeah. I think um, you've uh, been very giving with your time and what you've told me and also let me go off and do the writing and exactly do what I've needed to do, but also change when I've got it wrong, hopefully, as well. And I really enjoyed writing it. It didn't, I wrote it, I think, in 46 days, the, the draft. Yeah. And, um, but it didn't seem like work. It seemed, um, it, it wasn't a minute of work, really. It was just a, a, a wonderful life experience to have. Um, so thank you for yeah, letting me you. tell it. Yeah. Thank you. And I could never have written the story. Oh, so yeah, I can tell it, but I would never yeah. have been able to write it. So yeah. I, th I personally think it's worked really, really well. It has. And also the, the, the trouble has been, even though it's 80 odd thousand words, is yeah. still that's not enough words to tell the story <laughs> properly, is it? We could have gone on and on. There are so many red herrings that we yeah. could have put in, real life red herrings or characters or people yeah. or things that should have been in it really but we can't we just don't have time yeah. and it needs to be tight and con concise or other themes even that we could have um, explored it's been exciting it's been an exciting journey we'll see where it takes we'll us. see where it takes it'll be really interesting to see what other people <laughs> what they think think about it yeah. actually yeah yeah i know how do you feel about that then when people are then critiquing the book petrified absolutely <laughs> petrified also i've got you know, you know, huge. This is, uh, I think I've said it, to, to me, it, it does matter as if it were life and death, because yeah. it's your life and Jean's life and it's Melanie's death. So, yeah. so I have taken it really, although it wasn't work, I've taken it really seriously, I, I think, and been hopefully responsible um, and treated, 
treat it with a huge amount of respect. Always in the back of my mind there will be, is this good enough? Yeah. Uh, and have I done you justice? Have I done Manly justice? Have I done the Road Family justice? Have I done the investigation justice? That's always a constant uh, voice uh, in my head which is there. Well, I think so. I hope so. And, and as you know, you know, my, still, even writing the books, or telling the story, I'm still very protective of Jean and Adrian yeah. and Karen, and I don't want them to be exposed in a bad way. No, I versus don't think we have. saying how no. lovely and amazing they are, and you know, people should know that the brilliance of them, really. Yeah, they're just the most incredible people. I've been yeah. lucky enough to interview Adrian and, and Jean yeah. in, the, in the past, and yeah. they're. they're interesting aren't they because yeah. you would see them as just normal people but behind when you hear them talk they're, yeah. they're a so eloquent and b they've got this huge thing in their lives haven't yeah. they which they speak so eloquently Never go about. Away. well I'm glad we did it I think it's been a great journey uh, we'll see what what comes won't we of see it but yeah people think about it hopefully they'll like it well, since we recorded this interview, it's clear people have liked it. We've won the awards, we've made a presentation about it to CrimeCon UK, and the book has an absolutely outstanding 93% four or five star rating on Amazon, which is incredible. If you want a copy, please click the links in the show notes. And for more, as ever, subscribe at robertsmurphy.substack.com.